American Public Media, this is American Radio Works. I'm Stephen Smith. Over the coming hour, we present a collaborative reporting project from Transportation Nation and WNYC. The program is called Back of the Bus, Race, Mass Transit, and Inequality. It's produced by Nancy Solomon. When you think of the civil rights movement, transportation is probably not the first issue that comes to mind. But in fact, in 1896, the landmark Supreme Court case that legalized separate but equal, known as Plessy versus Ferguson, was about segregated trains. The ruling provided the legal foundation for Jim Crow segregation laws and wasn't overturned until the Brown School desegregation case in 1954. Then, in December 1955, the Montgomery bus boycott kicked off a grassroots movement for civil rights. Now, if you miss me from the back of the bus, hey, you can't find me nowhere. For a number of years, the Negro passengers on the city bus lines of Montgomery have been humiliated, intimidated, and faced threats on this bus line. That, of course, is Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Just the other day, uh, one of the fine citizens of our community, Mrs. Rosa Parks, was arrested because she refused to give up her seat for a white passenger. The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. They placed me under arrest, and I wasn't afraid. I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid. I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. At present, we are in the midst of a protest, the Negro citizens of Montgomery representing some uh, 44% of the population. 90% at least of the regular Negro bus passengers are staying off the buses, and we plan to continue until something is done. People were walking or getting rides in cars with people who had picked them up as best they could. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine, and they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. Just six months later, President Dwight Eisenhower signs legislation that funds the construction of the interstate highway system a seemingly unconnected event, but one that had enormous ramifications. Angela Glover Blackwell is the head of PolicyLink, a national organization that advocates for equity in transportation. At the same time that we were doing Brown versus Board of Education and trying to integrate the school system, we were investing billions of dollars in a highway system that segregated the nation by allowing people to be able to run away from urban areas that were integrating to suburban areas that were all white. Glover Blackwell was a young girl at the time, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri. Her best friend was a white girl who lived across the street in what was a mostly black neighborhood. 
She remembers how excited they were about the desegregation ruling. Now they would be able to attend the same school in their neighborhood. But when September came, I went to the school on the corner, and she was bused to a school in the suburbs. She and I never spoke again, by the way. But what's more important about that story is that America missed an opportunity. It used highway construction, money, and public policy to defeat what we were doing through litigation and through our efforts on the street. Transportation may have fallen off the radar as a civil rights issue in recent years, but the way federal, state, and local governments spend money and decide which kinds of projects will be built continues to be marked by racial inequality. We begin in the 1950s and 60s, when the interstate highway system was built. When urban planners decided where to place the highway, they often chose the black section of town. The urban renewal process just came in, wiped them out without any regard to the natural patterns that people were using to live. It was a devastation. One of those communities is the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, considered a slum by the city's white leadership in the 1950s and 60s. But as Laura Ewan of Minnesota Public Radio reports, the construction of the interstate through Rondo is still being felt today. Before the highway tore through St. Paul, the Rondo neighborhood became the heart of the city's black community. By the 1950s, Rondo Avenue was a bustling commercial thoroughfare, chock-a-block with barbershops and drugstores. Streetcars rolled by, and waiters, Pullman porters, and domestic maids who belonged to the city's African-American social clubs practiced their Saturday night dance moves to Count Basie. Nathaniel Kalik grew up in Rondo, in a house that his grandparents owned for about 15 years. There was at least three or four grocery stores that we could walk to. Everybody in that area knew each other. Kalik sports a white whiskery beard, and at 67 years old, he's among the last generation to remember Rondo. He was 13 in 1956 when crews were leveling houses on Rondo Avenue to make way for the planned Interstate 94. Kalik recently retired as president from the St. Paul NAACP. He's driving his truck along a frontage road off I-94 next to a chain-link fence and the war of traffic. Today, the 70 or so Rondo businesses are gone, and so are about 650 homes. Kalik remembers a day when his grandfather was forced out. There was um, cop cars everywhere, and when I walked into the house, these guys had axes and sledgehammers. They were knocking holes in the walls breaking the windows, tearing up the plumbing, you know, just to make sure that he didn't try to move back in there. You know, I was crying because it looked like something bad really happened. And that's when they started tearing out Rondo. A house then was everything to the black people. Orly Patterson also grew up in Rondo and now lives in the suburbs of St. Paul. To own your own home after, you know, you couldn't vote, You weren't considered as a human being. And then to see what happened with the freeway and when they came through and gave them nickels and dimes for that property, they never gave those people what their houses were worth. Never. And besides the values of people's homes, a vital sense of the community was lost. Most of the leveled businesses never set up shop again, and residents dispersed throughout the St. Paul area. Patterson is 70, with roller-curled hair and shimmery lipstick. She's a former political activist who chaired the St. Paul Human Rights Commission. The experience of seeing her community torn apart stirred the early beginnings of her activism. 
I remember all the dust and the debris and the dirt from all of the digging. And the freeway wasn't built for at least 10 years, so there was a big, muddy hole in the ground that stretched from Rice Street up to Lexington. Marvin Anderson, another 70-year-old, was a teenager when the freeway ripped through his neighborhood. Whenever it rained, it would be muddy and dirty where you couldn't play, where every day you woke up, you saw this gigantic eyesore. It demoralizes a community. Anderson is a retired attorney and law librarian for the state of Minnesota. About 20 years ago, Anderson co-founded a festival to remember the lost neighborhood. He spent years searching for evidence that the government purposely selected the site of the freeway for all the wrong reasons. Well, this is the letter that we we found back in 1993. It's a letter to the editor of the St. Paul Pioneer Press, written nearly 30 years after the freeway was built. The writer worked for the city engineer and admitted that the government chose the route for I-94 because it was in the city's low-income black neighborhood. For at least 10 years, we had been saying this, and we had never had any, any evidence to back us up. Anderson pulls out the letter and reads it. The freeway location as it is now built was a political decision and not an engineering one. The letter says the state legislature wanted to remove, quote, the slums near the state capitol to enhance the area. And we always felt that this was the smoking gun that we had always lacked. And it justified our complaint that the freeway through Rondo was not the proper route for them to take. And by using that route, it destroyed Rondo, the essence of Rondo. It decapitated Rondo. It amputated our soul. The highway building would often plunge through the poor black neighborhoods of cities because they were the path of least resistance. Myron Orfield directs the Institute on Race and Poverty at the University of Minnesota. If highway uh, builders tried to build through white neighborhoods or middle-income neighborhoods, they would run against a huge mountain of opposition that would impede the project in lawsuits and protests and political power that the white community had and the black community didn't have. Orfield says urban planners were more mindful of serving the middle class and getting drivers to work fast by building highways right into the city center. They wanted to secure mobility to the central business district uh, to make sure that people could move quickly through the city and not have to wait at stoplights. And they had a budget that they had with a limited amount of dollars. And if you directed it toward neighborhoods where the property values were relatively low and or there was a relatively high share of abandonment, this was the way to go. It's not that African-Americans didn't protest. Orly Patterson remembers black and white activists, including her own church minister, objected to the freeway from a civil rights perspective. She says the activists marched to City Hall and on other days climbed down into the freeway trench as a form of protest. Patterson noticed one spry woman in particular rallying passersby. Oh, she was just down there and she was had her bullhorn and she was telling everybody, they are down here trying to tear up our community. And she would shout out all of these things, you know, through the bullhorn and what have you. I thought, oh, geez, she's a troublemaker. You know, that's what I thought. <laughs> that woman eventually became one of Patterson's dearest friends. Patterson followed in her footsteps, becoming a civil rights activist and community leader. But the Rondo neighborhood was forever changed 
so much that some residents today still call Interstate 94 the scar on the ground. I'm Laura Ewan in St. Paul, Minnesota. You're listening to Back of the Bus, Race, Mass Transit, and Inequality. I'm Nancy Solomon. Following the mass exodus of the middle class to American suburbs, cities experienced a gradual deterioration of schools and increasing poverty. Even today, transportation funding continues to help the suburbs at the expense of cities. 80% of all transportation dollars are spent on roads. The remaining 20% is spent on mass transit. Even when you had transit, all transit is not created equal. Robert Bullard is the founding director of the Environmental Justice Resource Center at Clark Atlanta University and the author of 15 books on transportation, the environment, and race. Bullard says 7% of white Americans do not own a car, compared to 24% of African Americans. And that number rises sharply in low-income communities. More subsidies were given to commuter rail than for systems that were pretty much confined to servicing uh, low-income people. You had the Lexus type of transit systems, then you had, you know, the more rickety systems that's falling apart and, and not servicing population. So it's race. Makes a difference. These sorts of differences can be seen today in cities where new light rail projects are being built just as bus lines that serve low-income riders are eliminated. Let's return to Minnesota, where a new billion-dollar light rail system connecting St. Paul and Minneapolis would send trains speeding through what's left of the old Rondo neighborhood. Minnesota Public Radio's Laura Ewan picks up the story. Today, Rondo is known as one of St. Paul's lost neighborhoods. But Rondo is still alive, just scattered. We're back at Pilgrim Baptist Church, the oldest African-American church in Minnesota. During Sunday worship, men in suits and women with wide-brimmed hats sway in the pews. Just as its former pastor fought the freeway, Pilgrim Baptist is now challenging the Central Corridor Light Rail Project in the name of civil rights. They've joined a federal lawsuit alleging that planners failed to analyze how the project would affect low-income communities and people of color. No one is against progress and wanting progress, but at whose expense does progress come? Parishioner Orly Patterson thinks 50 years after the freeway was built, anger about the demolition of Rondo is fueling mistrust about the new light rail project. She and other community members worry that the construction period would wipe out some small shops and restaurants and that the transit system would force up property values and drive out lower- and middle-income residents. It's painful. It's very, very painful to, to watch to see what's being done right now and in those people who may stand to lose their businesses. Longtime resident Nathaniel Kalik, who lost his childhood home to the freeway project, says light rail planners haven't responded to the community's concerns about the route selection. We weren't at the table during the inception of this project. Some other folks made the decision where the project would be located. So, you know, we started off on the wrong foot. Kalik and others who live in the neighborhood don't even feel that the project is meant for them. 
a lot of folks already rely on buses to get around, bus service that transit planners intend to reduce once the trains begin to roll. Federal law requires that the civil rights of local communities be taken into consideration, but that provision has rarely been enforced. But criticism of the project from residents and local businesses has gained support at the Federal Transit Administration. The Honorable Ray LaHood. In January 2010, Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood announced the FTA would evaluate transit projects differently than the Bush administration. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I am pleased to announce Instead today. of cost-effectiveness, the agency would also look at the impact a project has on local communities. Probably no project more than the Central Corridor convinced us of the need to make this change. Peter Rogoff, head of the FTA, says he was sympathetic to the complaint that the Central Corridor light rail was going to stop every few blocks in downtown St. Paul, but only once every mile in poor minority neighborhoods. The federal policy change helped pave the way for the three stops to be added to the current plans. There is no question that this administration is going to take a careful look at civil rights compliance on the part of transit agencies. I think it's fair to say that uh, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to it in recent years. Well, I don't know that I buy the civil rights argument. Peter Bell was a longtime chairman of the powerful Metropolitan Council, a regional planning agency that is building the light rail line. He's a fiscal conservative and African-American. Like his opponents, Bell also grew up in the Rondo neighborhood and lost his childhood home to the freeway. But his experience has led him to support Central Corridor. There are many disparities that exist in this country that are based on race and income. You have health care disparities, you have disparities in the criminal justice system, you have educational disparities. Let me tell you one place you don't have disparities. That's transit. Low-income minority people across the country have more transit than upper-income non-minority individuals. That's just a fact. Not exactly. It's true that low-income minorities have higher levels of transit ridership, but roughly 80 percent of federal transportation dollars are spent on roads, and fewer low-income minorities own a car. Even so, Bell has other reasons for supporting light rail. Its power to revitalize that corridor is beyond serious debate. The people that question that, I say, okay, what's your answer then to revitalizing University Avenue? Not enough people say, okay, if not that, what? Many of the business owners along the east end of University Avenue weren't even around when I-94 plowed through Rondo. They set up shop many years later when no one else wanted to be there. University Avenue restaurant owner Alex Pham is one of them. His soup shop, Fuya Dao looks like a lot of the other Asian restaurants that line the street. Customers seated behind silk flowers warm up to hot steaming bowls of noodles and beef broth. Pham says he took a gamble 18 years ago when he opened his restaurant in the Frogtown neighborhood. Back then, he says, he ran into prostitutes and dope dealers, and he put his own life at risk. We get beat, we get robbed, but we stay. Yeah, we, we determine, you know, this area, if we try hard enough, we can get it going, we can turn the area around, and we succeeded. Pham thinks the construction will disrupt small businesses already struggling because of the economic downturn. They're barely above the water. So if the light rail coming in, definitely will be under. So how to deal with it, we don't know. No one disagrees that light rail would bring economic development to the neighborhood, but the question is, for whom? 
St. Paul City Council member Melvin Carter III is sitting in a coffee shop filled with writers and laptops in a neighborhood near Rondo that has become upscale. Carter was born after the highway was built, but his father lost his childhood home, and he understands why so many community members are suspicious of the light rail project. The lesson of Rondo is how long its shadow is. You know, that it happened so long ago, but we're still in the shadow of Rondo. And I think that's exactly what makes it so important that we choose our steps very carefully now. But Carter says the way forward isn't to scrap the project. Instead, he wants to see help for local residents to get through the long construction phase and to be there to benefit when light rail inevitably improves the neighborhood. I'm Laura Ewan in St. Paul, Minnesota. benefits from rail. That issue is central to a debate in Oakland, California, where an airport connector is at the heart of a civil rights battle. Casey Minor reports. Thirty years ago, when Bay Area transit officials started planning the Oakland airport connector, the Berlin Wall was still standing, personal computers were a novelty, and the new kids on the block were still new. The idea was to make it easy for travelers to reach Oakland Airport by building an elevated train directly from BART, the region's commuter rail system. So people were understandably excited when after 30 years of planning, they finally broke ground for Oakland's airport connector. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. People who support the connector see it as a landmark development project. In the short term, they say it will spark economic growth in a region that badly needs it. In the long term, it will make Oakland as much of a destination as San Francisco. BART and regional officials have pushed it forward for years, so at the groundbreaking, a sense of triumph was everywhere. And Oakland, we have something to be proud of. It also creates jobs, and it will help the local economy and the people of Oakland. What's going to bring Oakland and the Bay Area back to the 21st century? Admission to the 21st century isn't cheap. The airport connector is now projected to cost nearly $500 million dollars. That's a lot of money in a region where over the past several years, every public transportation agency has cut service. And no agency has cut more than AC Transit, which serves Oakland. Ron Dacus works for a trucking company at the Port of Oakland, out by the freeway in the shore of San Francisco Bay. It's a big, spread out area. Low trailers, big roads, fenced lots, and trucks roaring by. Well, right now, I rely on public transportation. There, there isn't, I guess, a direct line down to the Port of Oakland. That's putting it mildly. Up until a few months ago, there was a bus that ran from downtown Oakland all the way out through the port. But in March, AC Transit eliminated that line. Dacus doesn't have a car. It was a long walk from 40th and San Pablo down here, maybe uh, 40, 45 minutes. Good for the weight loss, bad on the feet. <laughs> Dacus is 40 years old, an affable guy who seems to know everybody. As we walk around outside the trailer where he works, the trucks going by honk when they see him. His cell phone rings a lot. It seems like he's always helping someone with something. And he's pretty relaxed, despite all the walking. Recently, when the rain was real heavy, maybe 11.30 at night, I'd finally catch a break and leave. And you just walk home at 11.30 at night? Sure. <laughs> if I want to get there. <laughs> His route takes him through a pretty tough neighborhood. Lots of abandoned buildings, dark streets, and what Dacus calls the seedier elements hanging around at night. So, um, so I got to ask, when you're doing all that walking, what are you thinking about? 
A car. <laughs> Just a few weeks after the connector groundbreaking, an organized group of AC Transit riders rallied at a big bus transfer point in downtown Oakland. They carried signs shaped like gravestones that said RIP. Off to the side was a framed drawing of a bus surrounded by flowers, like it had died. Advocates see the service cuts as a civil rights issue. AC Transit riders are predominantly low-income and people of color. By contrast, BART riders are more likely to be white professionals. AC Transit riders have seen their service dwindle by 15% this year alone, and that's on top of fare increases and other cuts. Some neighborhoods in Oakland don't have bus service at all. Activists want that situation improved before $500 million is spent on the airport connector. Lindsay Emai works for Urban Habitat, a transit advocacy nonprofit in Oakland. You know, why are you looking to make an improvement for airline travelers, people who can afford an airline ticket, when people who are living in that same community who can hardly afford a bus ticket are looking at worse bus, bus service. These are investments that will serve the region for decades to come. BART's general manager, Dorothy Duggar, who has been overseeing the Connector project, says the new train is about meeting regional transit needs and shouldn't be confused with the understandable need for local bus routes. She says it will create local construction jobs, reduce traffic and the number of polluting diesel buses on the road, and it will provide a reliable link to the airport, which will help draw high-income earners and more business to the East Bay. We're a region that has both growing pains and aging pains at the same time. I don't think we can simply stop and say, sorry, we can't serve the newcomers. Under a Clinton-era law, transit agencies are required to do a civil rights analysis before moving forward with any big project. That means they're supposed to determine how a new project will affect the community it's built in. In 2009, Urban Habitat and a few other nonprofits sued BART, saying it hadn't done that analysis. The groups won. It was the first time in the nation that activists had successfully challenged a transit project on the grounds that it violated the civil rights of local residents. The oversight cost BART $70 million in federal funds. Not a happy moment for Bob Franklin, a member of BART's board of directors. Unfortunately, some corners were cut, but we can't do that again. I, I mean, it's just, it's a hit on our reputation regionally and nationally. At this point, the connector will probably be built. There's enough money to get it started and enough political momentum to keep it going. It's not clear whether the jobs and economic growth will materialize and whether that growth will produce better transit options for local residents. In Oakland, I'm Casey Miner. The Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott left two legacies. It propelled a civil rights movement that eventually dismantled legalized segregation and expanded the rights and opportunities for a large number of African Americans. But there is another legacy, according to John Powell at Ohio State's Kerwin Institute. If you update the story, the bus system actually failed. That once blacks had really access to the buses, whites never came back to using buses in the same way, and they wouldn't support paying for buses. So blacks got the right to ride buses, but there are no buses to ride. Nowhere is this more clear than Atlanta, the largest city of the Old South. Like so many other cities across the country, when Atlanta built its interstate highways in the 1960s and 70s, it tore out the center of a mixed-income black community. It was the neighborhood where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born, grew up, and preached. Ebenezer Baptist Church is just a few blocks from the intersection of three major interstate highways. As far as the lanes, you can count one, two, three, four, Lee Biola, the president of the volunteer group Citizens for Progressive Transit, is standing on a bridge over a massive canyon carved through the center of downtown Atlanta. 
where two interstate highways that connect Florida to Michigan and South Carolina to Alabama meet. This major southern crossroads split Martin Luther King's neighborhood from downtown. 11, 12, 13, I believe, county lanes at this And like most places across the country, the highways helped the white middle class leave the city and commute to work from the suburbs. We had lost our streetcars. We had lost a lot of the intercity rail, a lot of the suburban rail. And so by the, by the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the city was just hemorrhaging people. There was lots of federal and state money to build roads, and that helped the white middle class to commute in and out of the city. If you couldn't afford a car, you were out of luck. Transportation in, in Atlanta has always been mired in race and racism. Robert Bullard, the director of the Environmental Justice Center at Clark Atlanta University, is a national authority on transportation and racial inequality. When Atlanta first began to build its commuter rail system in the early 1970s, Bullard says suburban white communities wanted no part in it. Public transit was equated with black people and poor people and crime and poverty. And when the Metropolitan Atlanta Transportation Authority was created, MARTA, it was a running joke that MARTA stood for, M-A-R-T-A, stood for moving Africans rapidly through Atlanta. To fund the new rail system, each of Atlanta's five suburban counties were asked to join MARTA by levying a penny sales tax per item sold. Three of the five declined, setting up a transit system today that Bullard calls transportation apartheid. The suburban counties... Uh, created their own separate and unequal suburban transit systems, bus systems, to uh, keep from being part of MARTA because MARTA was uh, perceived as being black and uh, they didn't want any part of it. So the Atlanta of today has some of the worst suburban sprawl in the country and a commuter rail system that is shaped like a cross, two lines that only travel into two of the surrounding suburban counties. Clayton County stretches south of Atlanta in an endless string of fried chicken joints, tattoo parlors, check-cashing stores, and used car lots. It's one of the counties that originally rejected MARTA, and now history is repeating itself. Faced with budget problems, Clayton scrapped its own bus system and once again decided not to join MARTA. I'm standing at the last bus stop in Clayton County, quite literally. This is as far south a MARTA bus comes. And for many folks, that means they have a long walk home along a busy four-lane Jonesboro Road. I used to ride the Clayton County bus, but right now I'm, I'm just barely making it because uh, I have to put gas in the car. You know, I'm just barely making it. 56-year-old Carolyn McMillan takes this bus every day to her clerical job in downtown Atlanta. She's one of the lucky ones because she has a car, so she drives to the bus stop and parks nearby at the Home Depot. I anticipate I'm in moving out of Clayton County as soon as possible. Where would you like to go? I want to move where it's a decent bus line. In the 1970s, when Clayton County rejected MARTA, it was a mostly white rural place. Now it's majority black, and its citizens are represented by a mostly black Clayton County Commission. When the commissioners voted not to join MARTA again, it prompted complaints and suspicion. This time around, lots of folks say they're not trying to keep all black people out, just the poor ones. Commissioner Wole Ralph says that's nonsense. It was about not asking people to pay more than what was needed. It's irresponsible for me to go out and ask citizens to pay $40 million for $8 million. 
I didn't thought everybody could like a little teasing when they said they're going to shut it down. But I kept seeing it on the news. I know but for real. I hated that, ma'am. I really did. Karen Cheney moved to Clayton County from Atlanta five years ago. She doesn't drive and has health problems that prevent her from working. She spends a lot of time making trips to the doctor. And without a bus, she has to take cabs. And that, that's expensive, you know. Going one way for five or six, seven dollars, you know, depending on other people to help you out, you know. That bus was a good necessity when I first moved here. I, I never dreamed in a million years they could do that. If you are able to prevent people from, you know, going into other parts of the region, that's a way of creating a situation of de facto segregation. Terrence Courtney coordinates the Atlanta Transit Riders Union. Well, I can distribute up in Sandy Springs. Yeah. Because the group meets at a housing complex in Clayton County for seniors and people with disabilities, a cluster of fairly new, low-slung buildings that has a community room the group is allowed to use. Courtney says public transit in Atlanta is not created equal. The neighborhoods with the largest percentage of white residents in the north are treated differently than the majority black areas. If you travel up the north side, right, you'll find that they have the best buses, the cleanest facilities, the most regular service. These are facts. The north side gets better and more resources than the south and east and west. Now, a huge swath of the metropolitan region that happens to be home to a large number of low-income black people has no transit at all. Lee Biola with Citizens for Progressive Transit says the neighborhoods where the original MARTA rail lines were built, the ones where black people lived and the suburban folks wanted no part of, are the places that have seen the most growth in investment. Middle-income and upper-income people are moving into the city. They are not moving into Clayton County. They are moving away from many of the suburbs. And if the suburbs do not get on board with transit, they are going to be large areas of blight. Clayton County isn't looking so good now. People trudge along the sidewalks sandwiched between strip mall parking lots and noisy four-lane roads. Carolyn McMillan, the bus rider who feels lucky she has a car, says she often stops and offers people a ride. One guy told me it takes him about 30 minutes to get from where he lived, but if ladies are walking, it would probably take them longer because I had walked. And it, it takes me about 40 minutes to walk from where I lived to the bus stop. The image of people walking along Jonesboro Road brings to mind the historic photos of Rosa Parks during the Montgomery bus boycott. Some of these photos are on display at the Martin Luther King Museum in his old neighborhood in Atlanta. The city has plans for a new light rail project that will take people to the museum, one of the city's biggest tourist draws. But as we'll see in the next segment, the prosperity that transit is spawning in American downtowns isn't necessarily helping low-income black people who stayed in central cities when nobody else would. This is Back of the Bus. Race, Mass Transit, and Inequality. I'm Nancy Solomon. As we heard in the Atlanta story, that region is experiencing a demographic shift where low-income minorities are moving to suburbs and people with high incomes are moving into the city near Martyr Rail Line stops. Andrea Bernstein is director of Transportation Nation, a public radio reporting project. 
For several years, she's been covering the way mass transit is triggering economic development. I've seen that in many places around the country. A good example is Washington, D.C., which began building its metro system around the same time as Atlanta, but it was much more extensive. And in Washington, you can really get a sense of how transit has affected land values, especially when you remember that white flight didn't just happen because of the construction of interstate highways. You also had racial tensions and riots. Like more than 100 other American cities, the nation's capital exploded after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot in 1968. Federal troops in combat dress have surrounded the White House and the Capitol building as racial violence continues here. As bands of Negroes roam the streets, a machine gun post was set up on Capitol Hill. Despite an emergency curfew, Negroes continue to loot at will in the downtown section, some of the trouble just three blocks from the White House. Black smoke can be seen billowing into the air in many parts of northwest Washington. The result of Around that time, Washington was talking about expanding its transit system. This was not universally applauded. The president of the Citizens Association of Georgetown opposed a metro stop in that neighborhood. She told the Washington Post, quote, leave us the hell alone. Not so in the less Tony DuPont Circle. In those days, a four-story row house cost almost nothing. What do I have to pay today? Two million. That's Chris Leinberger, a University of Michigan professor and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. We're standing in front of a gorgeous Q Street home with a detailed balcony and an impeccably trimmed Japanese maple out front. But it's not the nice touches pushing up this home's value. It's the metro stop. Transportation drives development. And if you're in a walkable urban place, you need multiple ways of getting around, not just the car. Leinberger spent 25 years as a real estate developer during a period when he couldn't build suburban homes fast enough. Now he's seeing the reverse trend in research he conducts for Brookings. Within walking distance of transit, we're seeing anywhere from a 40 to 200 percent price premium. The market is willing to pay 40 percent more to three times more. After the market crash, Leinberger says these DuPont Circle homes largely held their value. The population here, now almost all white. But then we drive 45 minutes outside D.C., beyond the borders of the metro, to Prince George's County in Maryland, with a population that's two-thirds black. We're now looking for Fair View Vista. We drive through a suburban subdivision with large new homes. They've got two-car garages, brick details, and window shutters. We stop in front of one that has an ample yard. It's worth one-fifth as much as the DuPont Circle row house. This is a car-dependent house. You cannot live here without taking your car to literally every trip from your home. This house seems like a piece of the American dream, but as Americans increasingly choose to live near transit, its value has plummeted 60% since the year 2000. The bulk of the mortgage meltdown took place here. It didn't take place in DuPont. But the pattern holds for all car-dependent homes, Leinberger says. Values also dropped in more established suburbs much faster than in urban areas. And in many neighborhoods like this one, the value dropped just as the black middle class was getting a foothold. All of a sudden, they said to themselves, hey, I'd like to live in suburbia too. And they moved out to suburbia just as suburbia went over the edge. Decades after many whites left Washington and other so-called inner cities, 
Lineberger says they're voting with their feet. The metro system has made downtown desirable. That's pushed property values skyward, driving many African Americans far out, beyond the reach of the transit system. That's Andrea Bernstein reporting. The demographic shift that we've seen in Washington is happening in lots of places. In our final segment, Andrea takes a look at Denver, the city with the largest transit expansion in the country. I first went to cover Denver's transit system in the fall of 2009. The country was a year into the recession, but next to Union Station, backhoes were actively preparing land for new condos. Tom Clark heads the Chamber of Commerce here. He was telling me the city had been caught off guard by the demand for these buildings even in these times. As I drive home every night and, and look at the young people coming out of these, these condos, I wonder, they must have really rich parents. That's the only way I can figure out they can afford to live there. <laughs> What's driving all this is the promise of transit. Right now, light rail brings about 6,000 people a day here. In a decade, it's expected to bring 20 times that amount. President Obama's top man for housing and transportation Sean Donovan and Ray LaHood came here to see. With a horde of local officials and the hassle of Secret Service, they hopped on the sea line and took a short ride past the construction and brand new glass office towers to a different landscape. This is the 10th and Osage station. <laughs> well, welcome, to, uh, welcome to 10th and Osage and the South Lincoln home. Ismael Guerrero, head of the housing authority here, led a walk through a small grid of shabbily built bungalows in a neighborhood where the median income is $10,000 a year. There are no stores, no offices. The existing structures here are all two-story walk-ups. The tour ended in a small grassy park where officials arrayed themselves around a podium. U.S. Housing Secretary Sean Donovan praised Denver's big transit expansion, called Fast Tracks. But at the same time, he warned, poor families will be pushed out. With working families spending, think about this, on average 57% of their income on transportation and housing costs combined, Fast Track's expected to increase demand for affordable housing with access to transit by more than 300%. So Donovan cut a check for a brand new apartment building. $10 million for Denver's South Lincoln Park development. A year and a half later, I went back to Denver to see what happened to all that money. In fact, the building was going up. Right here is where a new 100 units is being built, 100 units of public housing. Ismail Guerrero, the public housing authority chief, took me over for a look. On the chain link construction fence, there was a picture of what the new building was going to look like. Nice. You're going to have phenomenal views of the entire front range. The son of Mexican immigrants, Guerrero grew up in public housing in Chicago. He calls it a twist of fate that in Denver, Public housing was built down by the tracks on land that was completely undesirable. Now, he says, they'll be able to build 7,000 units for mostly Mexican-American and African-American residents right on the rail line. It's our land. Uh, we control it. We're, we're planning the future of it. Back in the 1920s and 1930s, streetcars crisscrossed America's cities. Denver was no exception with 300 miles. By the 1960s, there were no trains at all. Meanwhile, the population was rising from 5% Latino and African-American to 35%, and that population was vocally demanding better schools. I 
kids are just as smart as anybody else's kids given the opportunity. Denver became the first non-Southern city where the U.S. Supreme Court ordered racial integration in schools. I learned this history from Federico Peña, who would be the mayor and later serve two cabinet posts in the Clinton administration. As a result of the Keys case busing order, a lot of middle-class families, largely white families, left Denver and went to the suburbs. And that's when the suburban explosion really occurred. In an upset, Peña became the first Hispanic mayor here in 1983. As the city was emptying out, he began to restore the downtown. In an era where most people were only thinking about cars, he supported urban transit. Let's do an experiment. Let's have one small rail link, and let's put it right in the middle of the African-American community from downtown. And it was free. That neighborhood was five points. In the 1920s and 1930s, it was called the Harlem of the West. Louis Armstrong played here. So did Billie Holiday. But in the 1960s and 70s, some of the elaborate Victorian homes were raised, leaving a patchwork of empty lots. Then the light rail came, and development is following. Ah, look, it is open. Aaron Mirapol heads up a group called the Urban Land Conservancy. It's modeled after the Nature Conservancy, but the Urban Conservancy is not trying to keep land pristine. Instead, they're buying up parcels along the rail line. They'll preserve it for homes people can afford. This is a, a co-op on your right that we bid on and we lost, unfortunately. So market rate developer bought this co-op in the last six months and we'll hold it and when the market changes, we'll be able to make a lot of money on it. Mirapol's group is one of a handful of nonprofits trying to outmaneuver market rate developers in Denver. And you can see why Five Points is interesting to them. The homes have the kind of historical details that drive buyers gaga. Stained glass, carved wooden mantles, elegant molding. But the land rush is happening in neighborhoods that don't have the same cachet. Melinda Pollock and Karen Lotto take me over to Denver's west side. They work for Enterprise Community Partners, a group that has carefully documented how transit will increase demand for affordable housing by 344%. I'm going to say, you know, right now we're looking at a kind of a dilapidated strip mall with a pawn shop and a liquor store and a couple of restaurants and some empty storefronts. The Jody apartments are nearby. They look like an unrenovated 1950s motel. White metal stairs leading past brick up to a dark green second story. The whole thing horseshoeing around a parking lot. This is the staging area you're going right on. So their parcel, the Jody apartments, abuts where the light rail station is going to be built. Lotto and Pollock tell me about how their group's purchase of this land came about. It wasn't long after the 2004 vote to give the green light for a new sales tax for 150 miles of new transit with 50 new stations. And then there was a huge flurry of discussion, you know, really looking at this transit build out as making the opportunity to make Metro Denver a world-class city. What there wasn't was much discussion of affordability. Act now or the opportunity is going to be lost, and it's not just going to be lost on one new little five-mile piece. It's going to be lost across the entire system. It's a short drive back from this site to Federico Pena's office in downtown Denver, up in one of the big new buildings that have sprouted all around here since he was mayor. From his conference room, there's a stunning view of the sun fading over the Rockies. I asked Pena whether American cities will look back 50 years from now and compare light rail expansions like Denver's to the highway boom of the 1950s. 
except in reverse. Will American city centers in 2050 be mostly upper income with everyone else living on the outskirts? Well, it's, it's a good question. The day that you sit back and say, I don't care, just let the economic market forces dictate who's going to live where and what's going to happen to your city, then I do think we run the risk of uh, having almost a push-out of low-income minority communities away from our inner cities and pushed out 20 or 30 or 40 miles. That's a 21st century form of segregation this city is trying to avoid. In Denver, I'm Andrea Bernstein. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California, well, to the New York Island. A decade after the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saw the importance of transportation policy in the fight for civil rights. We asked Angela Glover Blackwell of PolicyLink to read an excerpt of an essay King wrote shortly before his death. If transportation systems in American cities could be laid out so as to provide an opportunity for poor people to get to meaningful employment, then they could begin to move into the mainstream of American life. The system has virtually no consideration for connecting the poor people with their jobs. There is only one possible explanation for this situation, and that is the racist blindness of city planners. Could have been written yesterday. It is just discouraging. If I were not a more optimistic person, I would feel that I am chasing my tail. We have more, but I am struck by, mm, 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 it's the same problem. Yet Glover Blackwell says we live in a vastly different world from the days of her childhood in segregated St. Louis, Missouri. So maybe, she says, what sometimes feels like running in circles is actually a spiraling upward. You've been listening to Back of the Bus, Race, Mass Transit, and Inequality a documentary from Transportation Nation and WNYC. Transportation Nation is funded with a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation and is directed by Andrea Bernstein. This program was produced by Nancy Solomon with help from Kate Hines, David Schultz, Wayne Schulmeister, Bill Bowen, Lisa Wanannan, and Andy Lancet. You can see photos and interactive maps at transportationnation.org. For American Radio Works, I'm Stephen Smith. American Public Media. 